Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Robert K. Massey, a journalist and historian whose focus was on the Russian House of Romanov and who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1981 for his biography of Peter the Great, died on December 2, 2019, at the age of 90. Along with a well-received biography of Catherine the Great, he was also known for his books about Tsar Nicholas, the Tsarina Alexandra, and the final days of the Romanov dynasty at the birth of the Soviet Union. On November 4, 1995, Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to interview Robert K. Massey while he was on tour for his book, The Romanovs, The Final Chapter, which dealt with events long after the Russian Revolution, from those claiming to be Romanov descendants to the disinternment and reburial of the royal family's bones after the Soviet Union fell. The Romanovs, the final chapter, almost sits as a footnote to uh, Nicholas and Alexander and Dreadnought in that it's the story of their bones. What prompted you to write this book? You're right, Richard. It's a book set now and not at the beginning of the century when the Romanovs lived and died. And you're also right that I thought, your implication at least, that I thought I was finished. I mean, Nicholas Alexandra was published 28 years ago and Peter the Great about 15 years ago. And I, I really thought that, the, um, that that was enough for me. I went on and did uh, other books. Dreadnought was one of them. And I was working on yet another book in a, another field when two years ago a friend of mine who was a, a molecular biologist at NYU Medical Center called and said, what do you know about the bones that have been found in Siberia? And I said, nothing or not very much. Why? And she said, well, a Russian scientist Pavel Ivanov was here and he gave a lecture to about 30 or 40 of us and it was absolutely fascinating. He was talking about how they had used DNA. He had brought some of these bones that had been found outside this Siberian city where the family was killed to England for DNA comparison. And they had identified the empress and her daughters. They had a, a not totally perfect fix on Nicholas. It's going to validate these bones and it's going to provide a, an end to the story. Are you going to do anything about it? I said, I don't think so. And she said, well, somebody is. And we all know about these people and this story because of you. Uh, and somebody will use your stuff. So I started looking at it. I got sucked in. And I've spent the past two years running hither and yon, becoming a journalist, which were my roots, interviewing people and trying to find out what was going on. Well, in fact, the Romanovs, the final chapter is is in a sense, a, a three-part story. The first concerns the story of the bones. The second is the story of the people who all claimed to be the children of the Tsar, of uh, Tsar Nicholas II and Alexandra. 
And the final section of the book, which is, I guess, a, a, quite a bring down from a discussion about the causes of World War One and Dreadnought. It's, it's very, very strange little tale is the story of the DNA testing of the body of the late Anna Anderson. And I want to start there because Anna Anderson is the woman who claimed to be Anastasia. There was a book or Anastasia, there was a book and film about her, the film with uh, Ingrid Bergman. I couldn't figure out why anyone really cared who, who did the testing. It never made any sense to me. There's a 75-page conflict in your book, the last 75 pages, and I didn't understand why anybody bothered? Why didn't they just test the bones and make sure? Well, uh, well. First of all, let me let me explain what happened. DNA made possible. You can you can take bones, blood, tissue, bodily fluids, hair, and extract DNA and get a, a base pair sequence and compare that with relatives, either living or dead, to find out who this unidentified person is. As you said, Anna Anderson lived for 64 years. She was really the, the most famous and most persistent mystery person of our century. And there were all these books and plays and films and so forth written about her. And she died in 1984, cremated. That's it, we would assume. However, about that same time, DNA as a tool in criminology and forensics was coming along. and. Somebody, several people, had the idea of if we could find a, a piece of her, if she left anything behind from which we could extract DNA, we could compare that with the known patterns of the daughters and, and, the, and the mother. In fact, it turned out she had, five years before death, had abdominal surgery. And the Martha Jefferson Hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia, where she lived her last 16 years, routinely kept everything they took out of people in surg surgical patients. And there were five one-inch little blocks of her in diseased intestine. The 75 pages are about the efforts by a whole crowd of very disparate people to get control of that tissue to have it tested. In a little courtroom in Virginia where the judge was uh, usually dealt with third-time traffic offenders or cocaine dealers or whatever, suddenly the oak doors of his courtroom flew open and in came Romanovs and Russian nobility and German television people, a long-lost daughter of this mystery woman, she said, all wanting control of the tissue. The reason they wanted it, which, which, which goes to your question, is, is that there was a lot of money, they thought, in it. If we can find out who she is and control this information, control the release of it, make yet another movie or yet another documentary or whatever. There's a lot of money to be made in it. And the judge, the hospital, wouldn't release the tissue except at the direction of the court for legal reasons. The court, that is the judge, wouldn't release it till he had heard all the arguments. And since he didn't feel qualified to decide who was in his courtroom legitimately and who was peripheral or even from sort of from the circus, he admitted everybody. And there were these really, uh, uh, they, maybe they were somewhat long-winded. I tried to take some of the wind out of it, but somewhat comical hearings back and forth about a long-dead woman and long-dead dynasty and so forth. Finally, 
a decision was made, the DNA went to a laboratory, it was tested, and we, we found out who she was. Well, let me ask you this impending state funeral, which in fact is discussed in your book, The Romanovs, the final <coughs> chapter, but as an unresolved question. Well, after the bones were tested in England, they weren't sure. They brought them to America. Nicholas II, or the purported Nicholas II, and the bones, which they knew to be the bones of his brother, who had died of tuberculosis, been buried in the cathedral in uh, St. Petersburg. They knew who he was. The bones of Nicholas had had a, a mismatch, uh, uh, what's called a heteroplasmy. They compared these bones over three months at the American Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Rockville, Maryland. And on August 31st, after my book went to press, although I, I, I'm sort of predicting that this is going to happen because I was quite sure it was. In fact, I'd been told that this was the way everything was going there. They announced that the bones of George, the brother, and the bones of Nicholas, DNA extractions were a perfect match. They had the same genetic anomaly. This provoked or permitted the Russian government commission to go ahead and make that decision. The Russian government had done what all governments do when they have a hot potato, appointed a commission. Look into it and don't get back to us too quickly. It's a very fragile thing. They didn't want to have to make this decision, but now they have made it. That is to bury the, the, the imperial family and on February 25th, 1996, bring them slowly by train. I see this sort of Lincoln funeral train yes. across Russia over a week back and bury them with a, a state funeral provided, presided over by the patriarch, the sort of Russian pope, uh, with Yeltsin there, Prince Philip there. Goodness knows, I suppose that's what Al Gore does. And all the Romanovs who, who can come or be swayed and bury them in a service of repentance because that is the day of repentance in the Orthodox calendar. And the idea will be to ask forgiveness for the murder of this family and for the 40 million or whatever murders in the communist era and close the book on imperial Russia, on communist Russia. Now, you know, our bloody history is over. We can go ahead and, and try and work out uh, this democratic experiment. You spoke of the nine skeletons in, in, I believe it was the Four Brothers mine. That's right. But there were nine skeletons. There were two mines. They put them in the Four Brothers, brought them up, put them on a truck. They were taking them somewhere else. The truck got stuck in the night. They panicked. They buried them in the middle of, in the middle of a forest road. There are still, and, and I know you covered this in the book, but even after reading the book, it's not clear in my own mind the two missing skeletons. The uh, chief executioner, his name was Yakov Yurovsky, said we burned them. And they have dug a wide uh, circle around this second burial site where the bones were actually found, buried and found, looking for the remains of a fire there. Because if they burned them, Yurovsky's instructions were to make the evidence disappear. None of these people were professionals in that sense, and they had no idea how hard it is to make a human body disappear in a fire, especially a bonfire in a forest. You can destroy the flesh, perhaps, but the bones don't burn that easily. And even though they had gasoline and sulfuric acid, he said that we could only do two. And so we threw the rest into this grave and covered it with railway ties and dirt and 
And remarkably, nobody ever saw them again. Nobody found them for 70 years. What happened to the other two? They, they've dug up the ground around. They, uh, they uh, uh, would have uh, been able to do it more effectively with ground-penetrating radar. But in one of these uh, endless squabbles and, and fights over prestige yes. and a Russian who had some authority trying to elevate himself went out there with, 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 and plowed up the ground looking for this fire. And that disturbed the ground, so they can't use use this thing. No one knows where they are. There's one possibility, and that is that there are some fragments of charred bones uh, were brought back by the white investigator who was there in 1919 and brought them back to Europe, gave them to the Russian Orthodox Church abroad. They put them in a church in Brussels, Belgium. Church won't release them for testing. There's one thing uh, we were discussing before we went on the air. By sheer coincidence, there was an article in this morning's Oakland Tribu Tribune. What is uh, uh, November 4th, 1995? If you would give us a, a brief summary and your comments. Well, on this it, is please. one of well, this is one of of a, of a more or less endless series of stories about members of the Russian imperial family escaping, turning up, and uh, most of them are gone because just by the natural actuarial tables. But this story says, uh, which you've just handed me, says that three Russian women say that they are the uh, children of Alexis the Tsarevich, the son, uh, in Finland, and they want to have tests done and so forth. My uh, answer to that is that while it's very, 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 very unlikely that anybody got away because uh, people who killed the three sisters were unlikely to... Uh, I mean, they had them completely at their mercy. They shot them, they bayoneted them, they crushed their faces with rifle butts. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. Unlikely that anybody got away. Is there any... Uh, we, we've been hearing all these years about all these people, yeah. and this is the latest. Yeah. Uh, going back the other way, are there any witnesses whatsoever who even hint that someone might have gotten away? No, most uh, no. I, uh, there, there, there aren't. Uh, there have been books written, and there have been claims made, and books written based on those claims that people got away. But what I what I was what I was going to say was that uh, Anastasia was a healthy young woman. Perhaps, given whatever, I mean, you could hypothesize that she was badly, critically wounded and got away. We know now that the one, the person who was the most likely pretender, the most persistent, wasn't. We have tested her DNA. I am the father of a hemophiliac son. That's why I got into this whole thing. Uh, Alexis the Tsarevich couldn't walk for six months before he was killed. For three Russian women to say that their father got out, first of all, that he survived this carnage is uh, unfortunately uh, not not likely to the 10th degree. Secondly, hemophiliacs in those days didn't, didn't live uh, that long. They had a very hard time. There was no uh, therapy, no transfusion therapy as, as there is today. He was a very severe hemophiliac. The idea that he could have been uh, even put in a cart and pulled to wherever this was, Finland, uh, and survive long enough to have daughters is very, un very, very unlikely. But, you know, what the Oakland Tribune yes. didn't say was that there's a, another uh, purported Alexis and Anastasia story coming from Bulgaria. 
I suppose that they, these stories will outlive me. All I can say is that I am not terribly interested. Nicholas was killed at the behest of Lenin and his family were all killed in order to presume with, with the permission of Lenin, yeah. With the permission of yeah, Lenin. Yeah. Uh, presumably behest, I guess. It's tricky because the documents don't quite establish. I mean, we don't have an absolutely hot smoking gun. L let's say at the behest or right. or with at the knowledge, the, certainly with, or the with knowledge. knowledge. Yeah, right. In order to keep the white Russians from rallying to their cause and in order to prevent a symbol from being raised that would destroy the new right. revolutionary government, question for you, hypothetical. What if he hadn't killed them? What if he had kept them under wraps or what if they had been exiled? Would that have really threatened? Would have made no difference. There was no chance that uh, the, even, even the white armies which tried to overthrow the Reds were not monarchists. They were, they were conservative. There were generals and admirals, Admiral Kolchak, General Denikin. They were, they were not in, interested in putting Nicholas or a Grand Duke, anybody back on the throne. They simply uh, wanted to overthrow, to overthrow the Bolsheviks. Nicholas had had his chance. He was finished. He didn't want to go back. He was tired. Uh, he wanted to, to, to take his family and go off like Ferdinand the bull and smell the flowers uh, so that it was totally unnecessary. The titles of Russian royalty and nobility are somewhat unfamiliar to me as an American. And I wonder if you would just explain the order of rank. What is a duke, a grand duke, duke or duchess, a prince or a princess in the old Russian Empire? The head, the chief man, was the Tsar or Russian term or emperor. Peter the Great was the Tsar who was proclaimed emperor in 1722. And after that, the, the titles were interchangeable. His wife was the Tsaritsa or the Empress. So that was the, the couple at the top. The members of the imperial family beneath them were called Grand Dukes or Grand Duchess. And a Grand Duke would marry a woman and she would become a Grand Duchess. A grand duchess would marry a man he wouldn't necessarily become a grand duke. There was a, a chauvinism in that. And I should say that only males could succeed to the throne. The Tsar's daughters were all grand duchesses. Uh, the son of the Tsar was grand duke, but he was also Tsarevich, which means son of the Tsar. And the Tsarevich was the, also the title for crown prince. So Nicholas II had four daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Marie, and Anastasia, all grand duchesses. And one son, who's really mostly called the Tsarevich, Alexei or Alexis, the youngest, the, the fifth child, and the, the hemophiliac. If there had been brothers, would they all have been Tsarevich? Uh, they would have been grand, called Grand Duke. But only the crown prince. Only crown Tsarevich. prince called Tsarevich. Below them, there were people who were called prince and princess. It was different from England where the princes are, are the royalty, you know, the royal princes, uh, Prince Andrew, Prince Charles, and so forth. And below them in the Russian nobility were counts. There were lots of princes because in Russia every child takes the title, whereas in England only the oldest child takes the title. 
That's a thumbnail. So, so, so there are, are hundreds of little princes and there princesses were. running around. There were. Okay. Another aspect of this, and, and I hope you won't think I'm being flippant, but as I read through the book, it struck me that there were aspects almost of comic opera to all of these people running around with titles and pretensions to roles in the royalty or nobility of an empire which has not existed for th 80 years. I think, Richard, you're talking about the um, little mini section in the back of the book, yes, which is about yes. the Romanovs today. Which is, which is wonderful, but in, well, in I agree a with you. strange Absolutely way. Absolutely agree with you. After I finished uh, with, the, with the bones, which do have a great historical significance, and the Anna Anderson thing, which is much less important but not any less colorful, because of its sort of uh, the American fascination with mystery characters. Then at the very back of the book, I talk about who the Romanovs are today, who survived, what they're doing, what they want to do. Do they want to go back to Russia and, and visit or stay? More importantly, do the Russians want them back? What chance is there, if any, of a restoration of a monarchy uh, sort of grafted onto this fragile system in which the president rules today by decree. As we speak today, first week of November 1995, there may be still another impending succession crisis in Russia. Well, because of Yeltsin's health. Yes. Yeah, Yeltsin is, is like, like the Tsar, is ruling by decree. But there is an election coming in December, and we have all this business of disqualifying parties, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, new democracy which doesn't really know how it, how it works yet. And there is all of this great uh, latent power lying around which nobody has picked up, which we in America don't want to see a new strong man. That's why we have backed Yeltsin through thick and thin, just as we backed Gorbachev through thick Indeed. and thin much too long. But anyway, I'm getting off your question. Yeah, the Romanovs today are uh, our family split Majority say, that's all over. Sure, we want to go back. And they've been going back. And they formed a foundation to try and, and, and help. I mean, actually, their foundation is trying to supply uh, uh, hearing for deaf children, hearing aids for deaf children, which is very worthy. There is one branch of the family headed by a, a, a fairly young woman who lives in Madrid who wants to go back and sit on yes. a throne. And I agree with you. And so do the other Romanovs that this is uh, uh, pretentious. Uh, and uh, Nicholas Romanov, the oldest and sort of wisest, he's an historian, was asked about this in St. Petersburg on television. Tell me, Prince, what sort of a czar do you think you'll make, you would make? He said, my, my dear fellow, you don't know, I'm, I'm a Republican. He says this is not the direction Russia should go that you can't have a system in which uh, you change the person at the top by killing him. You have to proceed with this uh, experiment in democracy. But the arguments back and forth as to who is and who isn't and who would be and who wouldn't be strike everyone as, as, as silly. I agree with you. And yet fascinating in a way. Uh, it's a little bit like, what shall I say, you, when you get into, the, into, in, into that little world, I'm trying to think of a novel, when you, where you go into the world, you become absorbed in the motives and the behavior of, of the characters, even though there's a wider world out there when you put the book down. Uh, I also think for comparison purposes of uh, the, the case in China, where there was 
uh, the Henry Puyi figure who survived into m- many years after the end of the empire. Right. Nicholas only wanted, I don't think he wanted to go quite down to the level of a worker, uh, so forth, but he just wanted to go off to the country and be allowed to grow plants and maybe shoot birds and so forth. He didn't expect much more than that on the one hand. On the other hand, he didn't expect to be killed the way he was. Well, let's talk about this, please, because this is where it ceases to be comic opera and becomes, I think, high tragedy. The imperial family in in old Russia, these were not figureheads. This was a real empire and a real emperor. It was a real autocracy. The the, the Tsar ruled by Ukaz. Uh, there was a parliament after the 1905 revolution Nicholas uh, permitted the establishment of a Duma, a parliament, but they didn't have much power except to talk. The Tsar appointed the ministers of the government and the prime minister. They weren't responsible to the Duma. They would go down there and the Duma would howl at them and they'd go back and do whatever they wanted to or whatever Nicholas told them to do. So that there was a uh, an autocrat at the head of a malfunctioning 18th, 17th century governmental system in the beginning of the 20th century. It simply didn't work, and Nicholas knew that. Nicholas said, I write my name at the bottom of a piece of paper, but I have no idea what happens next. I have no idea whether what I have just told people to do is done. You know, he was up in St. Petersburg. This was a a huge empire, one-sixth of the land surface of the globe, without modern communications, without a modern industrial base, with a, a, a very primitive economy, with most people living in what I think you could say abject poverty. People in America tend to think that the serfs were still there. That's not true. The Russian emperor, Alexander II, had abolished serfdom two years before Lincoln abolished slavery. But there was still uh, poverty. There was uh, there was prejudice against Jews, against other ethnic minorities. It was a, a lumbering, ineffective, repressive regime. The only possible way it can be made to look good as a regime, I'm not talking about the family, is stacked up against what followed. The oppression of the Tsars was peanuts compared to the what happened under Lenin and Stalin. Uh, Richard Walensky. What did Nicholas actually think about? Do we know what he thought about, say, Kerensky? Do we know what he thought about Lenin? Did he think or was he told that Lenin's forces were strong enough to eventually win? Well, Nicholas was concerned uh, in in his own way. Nicholas was a, a Russian patriot, foolish to a foolish extent. The thing that brought Nicholas down, uh, the, the the decision he made that was uh, his his greatest final mistake was to take Russia in to the First World War, and to continue to fight that. He did this because his father Alexander the Third had made an alliance with France because they were both afraid of. German, Imperial Germany, and the power that Bismarck had created. And as you know, when the war began, the Germans made this great lunge at Paris to knock the French out of the war. The Russians, uh, upholding their alliance, sent the best of the old army into East Prussia to take the heat off France, and this army was defeated and decimated at Tannenberg. But it, it served a purpose. The Germans were sufficiently worried about this mass of Russians coming toward Berlin that they brought 
uh, two army corps back from the Western Front to help in the East. And this deprived the lunge against Paris of just enough of its impetus to make it fail. Thereafter, uh, 19, rest of 1914, 1915, 1916, there was a massive bloodletting on the Eastern Front. The Germans had, and the Austrians, their allies, had heavy artillery with shells, were well-equipped, uh, better commanders, and uh, the Russians often had no artillery or they could only fire four shells a day. Soldiers would be sent into battle without rifles, told to pick up the rifles of the men who'd been shot, fallen in front of them. Millions of men died. And uh, Nicholas didn't stop this carnage. Kerensky refused to stop the war. When Nicholas had abdicated, was dealing with Kerensky, he... I won't say liked Kerensky, but he, he, he said he is continuing the war. This is what's important. He's not letting the French down. And so, in a sense, he approved of Kerensky. And the remarkable thing is that Kerensky, who came to see Nick, Kerensky was first minister of justice in the provisional government. Later, he became the sort of chief minister. But from the beginning, he was the one charged with dealing with the family. And to his amazement, he liked Nicholas. He found this simple rather winning, not very bright man. It was Kerensky who sent them to Siberia for safety. After the King George V of England had refused to take them, Kerensky sent them east to this little town way up a river in Siberia where they spent a long winter to get them out of the way. Then Kerensky fell, and when Kerensky fell and Nicholas heard that Lenin was negotiating with the Germans, still with the Kaiser's Germany, treaty signed in the spring of 1918 at Brest-Litovsk, giving away half of European Russia and a lot of the Ukraine. Nicholas was appalled. He still didn't feel this sense of, at the beginning, sense of personal danger. Then they were brought back. They were going to be brought back to Moscow. They were taken off the train in Yekaterinburg, put in this house for 78 days. The windows painted over, high fences uh, put on a prisoner's regime. They had no contact with the outside world. Then they began to understand uh, what was going to happen. We have very mixed knowledge, let's say, of Lenin and Stalin. We know Stalin was a bad guy. Lenin, how bad a guy he was, how good a guy he was, we in the United States still are a little bit confused, I think. He, he sort of sits there pre-Stalin and, and then suddenly Stalin comes in and, yeah, there's the bad guy. Yet it was Lenin's decision to treat these people as if, they, particularly the kids, as if they were all arch criminals. Uh, Lenin was a bad guy. I'm not the one to tell you all of the details about that, uh, but Richard Pipes at Harvard, who's written three volumes on, on the history of the revolution, can give you chapter and verse on that. Uh, so can Edward Radzinski, who wrote a very good book called The Last Tsar uh, about Nicholas and Alexandra. Most Russians who are not wholly sort of beholden or wedded to the Leninist are now appalled by Lenin's behavior as well as Stalin. According to Pipes, Lenin, the policy of terror was instituted by Lenin to control the people by making them totally uncertain as to what was going to happen next, people being snatched away and so forth. That has fairly well been established. There are still people I know who try to say, well, Lenin brought this revolution which needed to come 
and, and not many people would argue that some change was needed, but that it was Stalin who who perverted it and who who brought the terror. That that I think that theory, uh, that approach, uh, that view is is pretty well uh, gone among scholars. When we consider the whole Soviet experience, those of us who are, I think you and I are the same generation, and my partner Walensky there is the next one down. We're trying to this day, or, or I am, let me say, to make up my mind, so far without success, as to whether the Soviet failure, this 74-year failed experiment, failed, number one, because it was intrinsically a bad idea, an unworkable system. Or number two, it failed because it was led by a series of monsters, criminals, murderers, and ultimately incompetence. Well, that goes to the uh, the nature of, of human behavior and the nature of, uh, you know, it goes back to the, to the, uh, the question of whether we are all given freedom to act and choose whether we would be benevolent as opposed to competitive. If I'm going out into the world and I have a, I have a chance to grab this, do I want to share it? That has a, uh, a thousand answers. I mean, a million answers. I think that the uh, Marxist idea had elements of truth in it. I think that the total selfishness, uh, greed of unbridled capitalism, which was the economic expression of entrepreneurial, of, of self, of expression of self, was absolutely accurate. I mean, uh, and we in this country and in the, in the West restrained it, chained it considerably. I'm not sure quite what we're doing today, loosening those chains a little bit. We, we uh, put capitalism, that is to say, uh, I'm going to do whatever I want and the hell with you, on a leash. And we said we're a society. We have to worry about the health of the society as a whole. We have to worry about the uh, status of the weaker members of society, all these things. That's what communism was about, you know. And it was expressed in a, in a kind of a, of a, of a very uh, dramatic way from each according to his means to each according to his need. And you and I, it comes right down to us. That's fine in principle, but who's going to decide that my means should be turned over to your needs? I'm going to say your needs are not, don't strike me as being wholly legitimate, and my means are inadequate to help you very much anyway. And this is what, you know, why we have a Congress which is making up a budget, which is dividing up the gross national product, the national wealth, and so forth. I think in Russia, there was never a fair test. I have a a sister-in-law who's a, who's a very uh, a Chinese scholar, who's a very, devout is the wrong word, a very f fiercely believing Marxist who will argue that in no place has Marxism has ever been given a fair chance, that there's always a, uh, an element of repression and terror necessary. But on the other side, you could argue that in order to uh, establish this kind of sharing, which human beings are not always willing to do. I mean, you know, if we were all, what's I think, Mother Teresa, we wouldn't have this problem. If, we were, if Christians were all followers of the teachings of Christ, we wouldn't have this problem but because there'd be 800 million people who would uh, behave well. But n that isn't the case. And I, I, I think that 
you can argue, and I'd have a hard time arguing against it, that human behavior does have a, a sort of a, 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 I'm arguing the other side now, a Darwinian, let's struggle to get to the top or to succeed and use our elbows on our, on our fellows who are, who are in the way, that that's part of it and that that is getting in the way of this sort of, uh, of Marxist ideal and got in the way in, in these countries. And then you have the perversion, which I think is what you were talking about, of the Marxist idea by these leaders saying, we are doing this in the name of the people, the people's democracy, the people's courts. Lenin and Stalin, who were far worse autocrats than any of the Tsars, saying, we're doing this for the people and I'm, ki I'm going to kill another, I'm going to exterminate this ethnic group in the name of the people. Uh, and eventually, of course, Stalin was doing it just because he was terrified somebody would murder him in the night, whether it was Jewish doctors or, or Germ Volga Germans or Crimean Tatars and so forth. I don't know. We haven't yet had a fair test of Marxism. Whether it's behaviorally possible, I don't know. The, the Wall Street Journal would laugh at both of us for even <laughs> having this discussion. I'm a, a Christian, but I'm not a very good Christian because every time the IRS comes after some of my money, I try and keep it from them. Legally, yes. gentlemen, legally. But, <laughs> Do you think you know, you'd ever pass through the eye of a needle? Uh, I don't, of course not. Not as easily as a camel. Of course, course not. You've been listening to an archive interview with the late Robert K. Massey, recorded on November 4th, 1995, while he was on tour for his book, The Romanovs, The Final Chapter. The royal family, minus the two missing children, were formally reburied in St. Peter and Paul's Cathedral in St. Petersburg on July 17, 1998. They were canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church in 2000. The remains of Tsarevich Alexei and his sister Maria were discovered in Siberia in 2007 and were eventually interred alongside the rest of their family and all the Romanovs at the cathedral. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.